Hello and welcome to Equipping the Saints. I'm Ryan, and thank you for joining us today. Today we are going to look at science in the Bible through the prophets. And what I consider prophets is everything from Proverbs to Malachi. So let's go ahead and get started. Turn your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1. Verse 7 says this, All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. You can also look up Jeremiah chapter 10, Amos chapter 9, or you could even go back to Job chapter 36, and they all show a very detailed description of what we call the water cycle, or the hydrological cycle. From much of ancient history that we know, most people did not understand how this worked. They did not understand why the sea level never rose. If rivers are dumping their water into the sea, how is the ocean not overflowing at this point? Well, because it goes somewhere else, right? And so we understand it now as being the water cycle. You know, things like evaporation, for example, or distillation, precipitation, atmospheric transportation. We have all these different aspects of the water cycle that was not fully understood for the last couple thousand years, but yet the Bible has been clear about it from the beginning. And this is ancient knowledge. Ancient peoples understood this, as you can see. Solomon understood it. Jeremiah understood it. Job understood it. So why do we need to look anywhere else? The Bible has told us exactly how these things work. Let's turn now to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah has a few very interesting ones in here that we need to look at. Let's go to chapter 40 of Isaiah. Let's look first at verse 12. It says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and marked off the heavens by the span, and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure, and weighed the mountains in a balance, and the hills in a pair of scales? So what this is talking about here primarily is talking about how vast God is compared to the universe. It describes here how all of the waters of the earth are in the hollows of his hand, as if he were cupping his hands together to fill it with water. It would all fit in there. Or how it says that he can mark off the heavens by the span, the span being the distance between your little finger to your outstretched thumb. And that is about half a cubit, more or less. That is how big the universe is to God. It fits in his hand. And so it's no wonder that God is so amazing, he's so sovereign, and he's so in control because everything is so finite and so insignificant compared to him. But the other thing to draw from this is something that was discovered in 1935, that dust is important for survival. And it says here that he calculated the dust of the earth by the measure. So why is it important that we have dust? Well, because that's what we're made of. It is important that we 
have this as a basic element of our survival. And it goes much more into detail as to why, but this is something that was declared in the Bible. Here's another good one. Go down to verse 22. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He's declaring that the earth is round. It is a sphere. So many times, and even today, sadly, there's still people that think the earth is flat. But the Bible has told us from the very beginning that the earth is spherical. Go down to verse 26. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. It says clearly here that while there are a vast number of stars, and we still today have not fully calculated how many stars there are, the number of stars is indeed finite. We have not been able to even grasp how big this universe is. And just to think that our sun is a star. And I heard it described like this once. That for every human being that is on the planet right now, you could assign 100 trillion stars to each person and you still would not have calculated them all. That is how vast this universe is. Our sun is one star out of quadrillions, quintillions of stars out there. Imagine how vast this universe is. And yet, it says that God has counted them all, because there is a finite number of them. What an awesome God, right? He can count the number of stars, and he knows them all by name. And you know what? Even though he is in control of all the cosmos, he's in charge of all the universe, working in harmony with each other, he still has the time and the power and the attention to address you, a lowly human being in such a vast world. It's profound when you really think about it. Let's turn now to chapter 45. Have you ever heard of something called the anthropic principle? Basically what this is, is how scientists have discovered that the most fundamental characteristics of our Earth and cosmos are so finely tuned that if just one of them were even slightly different, life as we know it could not exist. So it begs for the realization of an intelligent designer, where this was done intentionally, and the Bible declares it as such. Look at verse 18. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. You can't get much more authoritative than that. He is declaring exactly what the anthropic principle is saying, that God formed the earth to be inhabited. This planet was designed 
for biological life. We are not one big cosmic accident. We did not come from pond scum. We did not come from aliens. We were designed for this planet by God. It looks like I jumped the gun a little bit on where I was in the Bible, but that's all right. We can turn a few pages back. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 24. Why do we suffer? Why is there suffering in the world? Well, the Bible tells us exactly why it is. As I mean, it's been very clear since the beginning as to why there's suffering in the world. But the cause of suffering is revealed here in chapter 24. And it says this in verses 5 and 6. The earth is also polluted by its inhabitants, for they transgressed laws, violated statutes, broke the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and those who live in it are held guilty. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men are left. So this is the answer. We have violated God's standards. We are sinners. We have violated his everlasting covenant, which is to be obedient to him and to love him with a whole heart. And because of that, we are under a curse. This is what happened in the Garden of Eden and what has happened ever since. So it shouldn't surprise us why we have suffering. We are causing our own suffering. God has allowed it as such because of our sin. Let's go back to the Proverbs. There's a couple places in here I wanted to look at briefly before we move forward with the rest of the prophets. So come with me to Proverbs chapter 17. Have you ever heard that laughter is the best medicine? Have you ever wondered if this is actually true or not? Well, the Bible seems to suggest that it is true. If you look at verse 22, read what it says. In my translation, it says, A joyful heart is good medicine, but a broken spirit dries up the bones. How true that is, though, isn't it? A joyful spirit really makes you feel good. And when you're depressed or sad or miserable, you feel like you're dying. And it's actually true to some degree. Broken hearts and broken spirits really rot you from the inside. And you feel miserable. And some people let that stress and anxiety get to them to where they get premature gray hairs. Or their bodies are under such strain that something else happens. But Solomon writes it here that laughter or being joyful promotes physical healing. In some translations, it might say a merry heart does good, like medicine. So what does laughter actually do to the body? Well, science suggests that it reduces levels of certain stress hormones. And it also brings balance to the immune system, which helps you fight disease. So there are some real benefits to this. And the Bible has declared it such long ago. Additionally, there is one more verse about this in chapter 18 that talks about the opposite side of the coin. If you read verse 14, see what it says. 
The spirit of a man can endure his sickness, but as for a broken spirit, who can bear it? Isn't it true that intense sorrow or stress is harmful for your health? Researchers have studied people who have no medical problems, and yet when they are depressed or under intense sorrow, that they show signs of stress in their heart, chest pain, difficulty breathing, low blood pressure, or even heart failure because of the dangers of stress. That's why you will not live a long life if you are constantly stressed. So it's important that you find outlets to relieve yourself of the stress, as well as recognize who is sovereign over everything. If we truly understood that God was sovereign over his creation, there would be no need to stress. Not to mention, in the book of Philippians, God tells us specifically to not be anxious, not to worry. That is a command. Jesus himself, when he was giving the Sermon on the Mount, he said, can worry add one more day to your life? And it can't. He says specifically, do not worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow will worry about itself. Every day has enough trouble of its own. So spiritually, it is a lack of trust, and that is the more important issue to address. But there is a physical side effect to that as well, as we see here. Intense sorrow or stress is harmful for your health. Let's move on to Jeremiah, chapter 1. Look at verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. So what he's describing here is that Life begins at fertilization. So there's this argument going on right now with abortion that you're not fully a human being until so much of a time. But the Bible describes that from conception, you are a human being. You are alive and you are developing. Your spirit is created and entered into a physical form. That is the reality of our situation. And that is why, as a Christian, We cannot compromise or accept that ungodly, satanic agenda. God is declaring to us that he knew us before we were born. So, is it no wonder that in the Law of Moses, back in Exodus chapter 21, that the biblical penalty for murdering an unborn child was death? If you killed a pregnant mother and the baby died, you were guilty of a double homicide. This is a biological fact that a fertilized egg is truly a human being. Nothing, and nothing should change that. God has declared from the beginning that all life is sacred, and you are alive, and you are a human being from conception. We are not less than human being in our mother's wombs. That is ridiculous. And that is just an excuse and justification for murder. While I am not ignorant to circumstances that are not favorable to women, 
I understand that there are things that happen that were against your will. But if we understand that God is sovereign over creation, then we should know that this was meant to happen. And because God gave you life within your womb for you to carry, that is a gift. That is a privilege to be able to bear a child, even though I know the circumstances that led up to that were likely not good. But bringing life into the world is very good. Please don't forget that. I know it's a lot of responsibility, and I know it is terrible for people to be forced into that situation. But if we understand God's sovereignty over all things, then we should accept it as it is. And when it comes to these traumatic incidents, you definitely need to seek help and definitely seek prayer for healing, healing of the Spirit. Let's look at chapter 12. Let's look at verse 4. How long is the land to mourn and the vegetation of the countryside to wither? For the wickedness of those who dwell in it, animals and birds have been snatched away, because men have said, he will not see our latter ending. So, the question is, how do things go extinct? If you were to ask an evolutionist, they will tell you that they should be able to witness a new kind of creature or plant springing into existence. And yet, this has never been observed. The Bible is contrary to this, and the scripture explains that since the curse is on all creation, we observe death and extinction because of what we have done to this world. Again, God's creation was perfect. When he created all things after six days, what did he say? It was very good. It wasn't okay. It wasn't satisfactory. It was very good. In the Hebrew, there is a vast difference between acceptable and very good. And sometimes I don't think the English quite captures that. But let me reassure you that when God created all things, he did it on purpose, and it was a perfect system. We brought sin into the world. And because of that, now all of creation, even the vast galaxies far away from us, are now subject to decay and to death because of sin. So that is why things go extinct. Extinction is our fault. Now, I'm not push <clears throat> Now, I'm not pushing some sort of climate change agenda here or save the animals, hate the humans sort of thing, but we need to recognize the truth that, for one, we will never just see some new kind of thing spring into existence out of nowhere, but there's a reason why animals and plants go extinct, and it's usually us. Let's go to chapter 33. Let's look at verse 22, and we're going to explore something that we've already partly talked about, but it's still so amazing that we need to look at it. As the host of heaven cannot be counted, 
and the sand of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the descendants of David, my servant, and the Levites who minister to me. Back in the time when Jeremiah wrote this, there were no telescopes, so you could only observe the cosmos through the naked eye. And so there's roughly about five to 6,000 stars that you can see with the naked eye at night. But God is stating here that there is a finite yet innumerable amount of stars. So we know that in the 17th century, Galileo created a telescope and he found just how immense this universe is. And we have continued to refine that and come up with new technology to see even further into space. The current estimation here is it's about 10,000 billion quadrillion stars. So the best way to illustrate that would be to put a number one and you follow it by 26 zeros. That is how vast this universe is right now from what we can tell. And yet the Bible is telling us that this is a woefully inadequate number. Why? Because God is saying it is incalculable how many there are. There are so many, and yet we are just on this little ball of dirt, trying to make sense of the universe around us. And yet the Bible describes God put it all there for us to wonder and to explore, and how wonderful that is. Shifting gears now, let's go to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 47. Let's look at verse 12. By the river on its bank, on one side and on the other, will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, and their fruit will not fail. They will bear every month, because their water flows from the sanctuary, and their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. God gave us leaves of the trees as medicine, and this is ancient knowledge. Leaves have been used for thousands of years for herbal remedies. And yet, despite all that, modern medicine is barely figuring out what the Bible has said all along, that healing compounds can be made from the leaves of plants. And it really makes you wonder how we go from knowing this thousands of years ago to not knowing this until recently. There's such a huge lapse of understanding here. And if the Bible has always been true, and it's always been available to us in some way, then it's just out of sheer ignorance. Okay, I have two more for you, and then that will be it for today. Please turn with me to the book of Jonah. Let's look at chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. That's a very interesting statement he made there in verse 6. I descended to the roots of the mountains. Bear in mind the context of this as well. This is something that he prayed to the Lord 
while he was in the belly of the great fish. So what is he saying here? That while he was in the belly of the great fish, he went down to the root of mountains? What he is saying is that there are mountains on the bottom of the ocean floor. We have barely, within the last 50 years or so, only discovered that recently. We've discovered that there are towering mountains and deep trenches in the depths of the sea, and yet Jonah is telling us about it even back then. How amazing that is. And the last one that I want to leave with you today is in the book of Zechariah, chapter 12. Look at verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. So, this is not the only place it says this. You can also go back to Numbers chapter 16. For Samuel kind of talks about it as well. And the New Testament describes it much more clearly. But even in the Old Testament, the understanding was that who you really are is not physical. The real you is spirit. Think about it. If our personality, if our souls were nothing more than just our physical frame, then we would cease to exist when we die. Additionally, remember the conversation we had about animals. Animals don't have spirits like us, but yet how are animals so different from each other? How you can have identical looking animals and yet they all act differently. They have different favorites. They have different preferences. They have different likes and dislikes. They behave differently. Here's another example. Let's imagine that you had a heart transplant. So it's not like if you got somebody else's heart, you became part of the other person, or somehow his character was imbued within you because you received his heart. That doesn't happen, right? Nor is it that if you have an amputation, if you lost some limbs or things like that, it doesn't make you half a person. You're still a complete person. So our nature is that of spirit. And so we have to understand that the real you is a spirit. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, the Bible says that man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And again, when the Bible is talking about the heart, it's referring to a spiritual thing, not to your physical heart. Your heart's being your soul, who you are in the inside, where you do your thinking, where you have your likes and your dislikes, where you have your motivations and your decision-making. Your brain is indeed a conduit for those things, but you don't cease to be a person if you lose your brain. You're still a human being because your soul is preserved in a spiritual form. It is not a physical thing. And with that, that is all that I could find for science in the prophets. So next time, we're going to look at science in the New Testament. There are more than I originally thought, and so I look forward to sharing that with you next time. Until then, thank you for listening. 
I'm Ryan, and we'll see you next time. Take care, and God bless you.